this evening to the book of Zechariah. We'll be starting at chapter 8 tonight. And while you're turning to that, I want to ask you a couple questions. If you've been watching the news, what's going on in Israel? If you've been watching the news, how much chance would you give to Israel? It seems like the entire world is turning against them, even America to some extent. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be political about this, so don't take it that way. I, I actually believe that we are a or that we should live by certain laws, and I, I like laws. I think we should be rule-oriented to an extent. If the rules are not good, then we need to change the rules, not just simply not follow them, but uh, just do away with them or something in, the, in a logical or legal way. And uh, after some of the bombings that have happened this week, there were some bombs that had went pretty close to the Tel Aviv airport, and it caused Delta and maybe another airline, I think, that the suspended flights going in there. And then America... Uh, their State Department issued a uh, restriction on planes flying into that for the time being. I'm not sure if they lifted up today, but that was because of some of the laws that they have. But uh, anyway, Israel, a lot of the people there were pretty upset because they felt that this was given a victory to Hamas. And they were saying, and of course uh, Hamas was accepting a victory, uh, that look what we've done. We've stopped them and we've, we've hurt them, and it's going to be a very hard thing on their economy. But nonetheless... Uh, looking at all that, and this is tying in with the lesson that we're going to have tonight. So, like I said, it's not political on my part, or I'm not trying to be political, but just to ask the question, what about Israel? What's going to happen to them? What, uh, what do we see now? Yes, sir. So it seems like the world is turning against them. But we, we have to ask the question. See, Paul had the same question. As Paul was writing the book to the Romans, one of the things that you'll see is he's very systematic in the writing of the book to the Romans. He starts out by... Well, basically saying that we're all sinners, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is in need of salvation. And then he goes through this systematic step by step about Jesus Christ, how Jesus was greater than the angels. Then he says that Jesus is greater than uh, the prophets. And he gets to the point of where Jesus is greater than the high priest. And the question arises, well, then what about the priest? What about the temple? What about the Jewish people? Is there no longer any need for that? And Paul has to address that. And we get a lot of that doctrine out of Romans chapter, well, the end of chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 uh, that we see when he addresses what's going to happen to Israel. Well, the same thing happened back in the book of Zechariah. We have some of those questions about the law, about the Jewish people. What's going to happen with them? What's going to take place? What's going to be their future? Are they going to come to an end? Or is there going to be an extension of the Jewish people? Are they going to continue on? I forget who it was that uh, asked a king one time about the proof of God, and uh, the, uh, the person just looked at the king and said, Israel, my Lord. And you start to think about all that Israel had been through, all the battles, all the conquests. We'll talk about a few of them tonight. But yet still a nation, 2,000 years after Jesus walked the face of the earth, we still have a nation, Israel. All that takes place, that there's still a nation there. And it has to, we have to ask the question, is there a purpose? Is there something that's going to happen in the future to make it reasonable why they have stuck around? Well, Zechariah in the 8th chapter, he's actually going to give several promises about the nation of Israel. In fact, if I was a Jewish person, this would be a chapter in the Bible that I would absolutely want to memorize. I would want to be able to quote this from, well, from verse 1 all the way down to verse 23 because there's some great blessings that's coming from this, a great inspiration to the nation of Israel. So let's go ahead and read. Amen. Anybody notice a common theme in this reading? Something that seemed to come up time and time again? 
thus saith the Lord of hosts. If you read through that, or the phrase, thus saith the Lord of hosts, appears ten times in this passage of Scripture. If you think about that, that's pretty amazing. The number ten is often used in Hebrew writing as a metaphor for excess. When you would hear someone talk about ten, it wasn't necessarily just the number ten, but it was saying an excessive amount or more than enough. In fact, uh, there's a question that's asked of Elkanah, uh, of, of Hannah, if you remember the story about Hannah and she was wanting a child so bad and she kept praying for a child and her husband came to her and he finally asked her that very infamous question. You remember what it was? I know Kim knows this. Anybody remember what the question that he asked her was? Am I not better than ten sons? He was her husband. He was asking her, am I not better than ten sons? You can read that First Samuel chapter 1 and verse 8. And see what he's saying. And really what he was saying wasn't necessarily saying, am I not better than 10 sons? Maybe not 11, but at least better than 10. What he was really asking is, am I not better than any number of sons you could have? I'm your husband. And, of course, sons and husbands, we know are different. And women throughout history have thought, what a stupid question that was. And uh, men throughout history are thinking, why doesn't she get what I'm saying here? But it's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor for excess. You'll see it often other times in the Bible. He'll talk about ten times I've said this, ten times I've done this, ten times happened. And it's just really kind of pointing to that there's more than enough here. There's an excess of things here. And when we read through this, we see that thus saith the Lord of hosts is used ten times to emphasize this is God speaking. This is not Zechariah. Sometimes as we writers, we readers, we teach, we want to input our desires into our teaching. I know as a pastor, a lot of times when I'm working on a sermon or I'm working on an outline or teaching outline, that it's difficult for me to not put my desires of what I want it to say in there. You know, it's difficult for me that sometimes as a husband, you know, when I listen to Kim and she'll say, well, you just go to the store and you buy what you want. And I write my desires into that. And sometimes it gets me in trouble because she didn't really mean that. What she meant was go to the store and get what I told you to get. And, uh, you know, that's very different than go to the store and get what you want. And, and you know, but we, we tend to write our desires in, in things. So for a Jewish person working to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the, uh, or the temple, to get it reestablished, to reestablish worship, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, it would be very easy for him as he's writing down the words of God to put in there great things about his people. Do we do that as Americans? I think we do. We try to find in the book of Revelation or in the Old Testament concerning the final days prophecies, we try to write in there America somewhere. We want to see America in the end time prophecies because we're Americans and we're the most powerful nation in the world. Surely to goodness we're going to be in there somewhere. And some people will go through great lengths to make sure that they fit America into those prophecies in some way or another. Are they there? I don't know. It's not been revealed to me yet. There's a couple places I might say, yes, I can see that. But the simple fact is we don't know. But this is uh, Zechariah's way of saying, this is not me projecting my beliefs. This is not me projecting my desires on the word of God. This is God's word because he's going to talk about the restoration of Israel. He's going to talk about the calling of the nation back. He's going to talk about reestablishing that covenant, reestablishing that relationship with them. And he doesn't want them to misunderstand that this is just him. He wants them to know 
This is God speaking. So as we read through this chapter, we need to realize that this is about the future of Israel concerning God's desire about their place, about their relationship with God, and about their relationship with the rest of the world. And you'll also notice that it's starting at home. It's starting where they're at, and it goes from there uh, throughout the rest of the world. Just like something that's very familiar to the Christian belief, our gospel is supposed to start where? At home. And then where? Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and to the other parts of the world. So it's like concentric circles that we, the circle gets bigger each time that we go out until finally we're encompassing the entire world. Well, the nation of Israel also had a commission on them. They were supposed to be the representatives of God in this world. They were supposed to introduce nations to the God whom they serve, but because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, because of their lack of desire to see God manifested in their midst, they took on the other nation's God instead of allowing their God to influence that other nation. And this is a lesson to us all that we need to be very cautious when we accept other people's philosophies and ideas if we're supposed to be representing God in, in our philosophies, in our ideas, in our, our religion. And it drew them away, and they didn't do it. So God is going to try to reestablish them with that here. So the original hearers of this, the original readers of this uh, passage of Scripture would have understood immediately that this is God's Word speaking. We need to understand that when the Word of God speaks, it is God's authority that's being spoken. Uh, 2 Timothy tells us that all Scripture is inspired of God. It's given from Him. So it's not just man. So when we read uh, the writings of Paul, guess what? We're reading God's Word. When we're reading the writings of John, guess what? We're reading God's words. The words written in red in your Bible do not carry any more weight or importance in them than the other epistles of the Bible. If they are all inspired of God, then it doesn't matter if they're written in red or if they were written by Paul or by John. Does that make sense? Now, that's using the proper techniques of rightly dividing the word because some things, as Brother David will tell us, some things were not meant for us. They're, they're meant for us to understand and to utilize, but they're not actually commandments to us. For instance, God told Noah to build an ark. Does that mean that we all go out and build arks? No, we understand that was a specific message for a specific man, but we can learn from that. And he tells them that I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. In verse 1 through 6, God begins by re-explaining or re-establishing his jealousy for the nation of Israel, that he is a jealous God. Chapter 1 and verse 14, So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. He tells them from the very beginning that he is a jealous God over them. In fact, what's the first commandment? You know, to have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. He tells them, I want you to be mine and mine alone. I do not want to share privileges with you with any other small g God. There's only one capital G God. There's no other. Any other small g God is a created God. It's created by either Satan or by mankind. And he says, I'm not going to share with you. So he points out again here that I am jealous. And oftentimes as we read through the passage of Scripture, he, he describes his relationship with Israel much in the same way as a husband and a wife. And he has that desire for his wife. He desires for her to be to him alone, to only, uh, only committed to him. And in return, his commitment is faithful 
to her and that he does uh, fulfills all of his covenant with her and, and does all that he says that he's going to do. In fact, as we go on and we read this, a lot of what happens, a lot of the persecution that came upon Israel was because of the covenant that they had made with God. You know, we sometimes we think of the unconditional covenants of God, but a lot of the Old Testament covenant was conditional. And there was provisions in there that, as he said, if you do this, I will do this and I will bless. But if you do not, then will I remove my presence? Will I allow the pestilence to come in and destroy you and the canker worm to take your crops? And he goes on and gives those. So these are all part of those covenant conditions that he has. So the first thing he does is he establishes uh, his... Um, his, pro, or his, uh, his desire to let them know that he is jealous. And then he tells them that he's coming, that uh, God announces that he is returning to Zion. This is a promise of his re-coming, that he is coming back into this city to rule and to reign, which would have been a great rejoicing to the people um, that, he was, that he's going to be there. Uh, verse 3, Thus saith the Lord, I am returning unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. You remember the, the temple was built for what purpose? To house the presence of God. So for the hearers of this, as they were building the temple, like I said, they're about two years out still yet from having the temple completed at this point in time. For them to hear the promise of God that he is coming back was effectively for him to say that you will finish the task that you've got before you. Now, they were still equating the temple with the presence, but this is not what God is talking about here. He's talking about his presence coming in during that millennial reign, the second kingdom uh, of him coming. After the rapture takes place, after Armageddon, and he establishes his throne here on earth during that millennial time, that he is coming uh, back again. You can see a lot of that. Uh, but then he goes on and he starts to describe what the nature of the city will be like during that day, what it will be like during that time. Now I want to ask you, looking at the news today, what is the nature of the city of Jerusalem? You know, if we think about it, it's a very dangerous place. Is it a place safe for older people? Or how about children playing in the streets? You know, in fact, if you, not, not just today, but if you look back through history, even before this period of time, remember that the nation of Israel, that the city of Jerusalem was considered a wicked city by the, uh, the scribes and the people that were going to, uh, during Ezra's day. You remember, I wrote it down here in chapter 4 and verse 12. As they go to him, they're making accusations against the city. And this is how it was known. Be it known unto thee, king, that the Jews which came up from, uh, from thee to us are coming unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and bad city, and have set upon the wall, uh, set the walls thereof and joined the foundation. So they referred to it as a rebellious and bad city, but this was something that was commonly thought of during that time. It was a time of rebellion. It was a time of war. If we follow that all the way through, is there ever been a time that Jerusalem was not a city like that? Even though it should be the city of peace, Jerusalem, it's always seemed to be a city of conflict. And it was no different in Ezra's day through up to date to where uh, we see it even happening today. But this is going to change. The very nature of the city was going to change around and be different. Isaiah chapter 1, I gave you a moment ago, in verse 26, calls it a faithful and a righteous city. Uh, chapter 60 and verse 3, he calls it a holy city. In chapter 62 of Isaiah, uh, he calls the people holy, redeemed, sawed out, and not forsaken. As he goes on through here, it says that there's a, it's a city of truth, a holy mountain in verse 3, a safe city where old men and old women will go about freely, where children will go out to the streets and play. What a glorious time 
that that would be. If I was a Jewish person, I would want to know that there's a day coming that my children will be safe playing in the city and that my elderly parents and friends will be safe in the city walking about, that the men will have their canes. They don't have to worry about someone coming up to them and mugging them. But it's not that way today. In fact, it's not been that way for a very, very long time. Uh, in verse 6, look at what he says here. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? If it's going to be good for you, just imagine how I feel about it. If we have good news about one of our children and somebody comes up to us and, we, and they, they, they say we are so happy for Sam, that Sam is getting to do this, just imagine how we feel. If you're happy from the outside of someone that you have a love for, just imagine what that's like for the parents of that person. Well, God is saying here, if you think it's marvelous to you, just imagine how I feel about it. This is my beloved. This is the apple of my eye. This is who I love. And if it's marvelous to you, just imagine what it's like to me. And I think that's a beautiful thought, or beautiful thought that we have there, uh, that he does that. Uh, he tells us in verse 7 that he'll regather his people. Uh, the people were scattered and throughout the entire world. You remember the Assyrian army came into the ten northern tribes and they scattered them, assimilated them to other parts of the world, sent them to places, well, it doesn't say, but we can make the assumption of, uh, because of the Assyrian Empire, places like Turkey, Russia, Romania, all through the Middle East, all through the uh, Asia continent or all through the European area, uh, that the Jewish people have been scattered there. And, and God is saying that now I'm going to draw them back. In fact, this, like I said, this is part uh, of that covenant. You know, and it shall come to pass that the Lord rejoice over you and do good and to multiply you. So the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And ye shall be plucked off from the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all the people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And thou shalt serve other gods which neither thou, thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And this was all part of that covenant. You know, in Deuteronomy, it's reestablishing that covenant. He gave the condition, if you'll not follow after me, if you'll not obey my commandment, if you'll not fulfill your end of the covenant, this is what's going to happen. Well, let me ask you a question. What happened? That God was true to his word. He was keeping his covenant with his people when he scattered his people. But yet he's going to regather them and bring them back in to a, the right relationship with him. So all the way through from the Assyrian, all the way through the Roman Empire, uh, it was because of the disobedience of the Israelites, not because of anything else. God allowed these nations to come in and, and to do that work because of their refusal to receive and to accept him. Uh, but restoration is promised. And he says, I will save them from the east and from the west. And we just read there in Deuteronomy where he would scatter them all over. But it's interesting here that he points out specifically to the east and to the west. And I'm not sure that he did this for any real specific reason, but I do think it's interesting if we look at the nations to the east and the west of Israel. Uh, of course, to the east of Israel, to the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea, Egypt and 
area down at the bottom. Uh, then up on top you have Greece, Turkey, Rome, uh, Italy, all that area up on top. And then if you go out to the Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, and all those nations. And if you look at a large part of that world, there's a lot of Jewish people that are still part of that world but he says i'll bring them back from the east and from the west and he's going to draw them back in and restore them in this uh relationship and then verse eight is just full of promises uh, let's just read that again and i will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of jerusalem and they shall be my people and i will be their god in truth and in righteousness he says first i will bring them in. This is God's work. God is going to put a desire in their heart that really is beyond human explanation. Sometimes we have a desire that God places on our heart that is really not a natural desire. Let me ask you this. Is it a natural desire for a person to want to go to Kenya to see people in Kenya saved? Is it a natural desire to go down to Liberty Elementary School and want to minister to the children there and provide school supplies for them? If it's a desire that we have, these are not natural. It's not something a man normally would do. We tend to think of man as being basically good that just sometimes does evil stuff. But the Bible testifies the very opposite of that. Man is inherently evil, and we will get more and more evil apart from the presence of God. But when we have the presence of God in us, he establishes a new heart, and he gives us desires that no longer are what ordinary people will get or ordinary people have. Uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 says, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. But yet the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are going to have this desire to go back home. And I think that we see part of that even today. Uh, that's why when you go to Israel, you have doctors, you have people who have PhDs or a master's degree that is working at little stores and stuff like that in order to make a living because uh, they just have that desire to go back home so greatly um, but they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem like I said this is uh, this may have sounded to the uh, amazing to the people who heard it for the first time because they were still a couple years out of building the temple uh, but just imagine what all had happened from before that period of time well even up till now and I just kind of wrote down a handful of things about it and, and just think about how today if we look at that same prophecy how amazing it is to know that the nation of Israel is going to dwell there in peace. Uh, like I said, the temple was desecrated there again. It was completely destroyed in 72 AD. Uh, the occupation of the Greece and the Romans, uh, Romans uh, up until about 630 where the Muslims came in and took over and kind of went back and forth. Uh, 691, the Muslims built the Dome of Omar or the Dome of the Rock on the, uh, the Temple Mount. Uh, so it was up until about, I don't know, about... Uh, the end of the uh, 11th century that the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the crusades were taking place so it fell and uh, was regained and fell to Christians to Jewish people until the Turks finally took over uh, and they held on to it till about the 1400s or till about the 1500s when the Spanish took over and the Spanish of course they started their uh, their famous inquisitions trying to convert Jews into uh, Christianity and that took over until the Ottoman Empire and then Egypt took so, took over and then Russia come in and took over and this there's different things that happened but these are some of the main things that had happened until 1914 when World War One came in and from uh, you know there's even after that there was a great unrest in Jerusalem between the Jews and the Muslim people until 1947 
uh, when the UN voted to establish a part Jew, part Palestinian state. And then, of course, in 1948 was the Six-Day War when Israel became a nation once again. But even if we look at it today and all the unrest and all the violence and stuff that takes place to realize that the prophecy still says that they are going to dwell there in the midst of that in peace and that God is going to be their Lord and they are going to be his people is an amazing prophecy uh, in light of everything that happens today. And uh, the key point to get here is it's not going to be because of their own power their own military strategy or their own might, but because of the power of God. God is going to be the one that draws them in. God is going to be the one to establish them and to rebuild the temple. And uh, uh, They are going to be his people. And once again, establishing uh, the Jewish people as his representatives here on earth to represent who he is and then, of course, represent the world to God. And he says, I will be their God. And the, the covenant will be fulfilled and God is going to be uh, be theirs and they're going to become his people you know so the manner in which he rules and reigns during this time as he goes on at the end of verse 8 is in truth and in righteousness and, and I, when I read that particular phrase there's something that jumps out about me because isn't that his character all along as we read through the character of God doesn't it say that he is abundant in what in truth that he is the righteousness you know that he is that that's that's his character that's going to be established even during that time with the nation of Israel. Any questions or comments thus far? You think that they're going to help that they will as a nation trust Christ coming this relationship with God? I think it's absolutely paramount that they have to trust Christ. If they don't accept Jesus Christ, they're still serving a pagan God. Uh, I, I've said this from the beginning, and, and this may sound horrible to say it this way, Judaism today is a pagan religion. It is a religion that is anti-Christ. Now, does it have its basis in the same beliefs that we have? Yes, it does. But remember, the law was to draw people to Christ Jesus. According to Galatians, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was a picture of his sacrifice. It was a picture of him going to the cross at, the, uh, at Calvary. The law condemned us all under sin and pointed to the simple fact that we needed a Savior. But when Jesus Christ came into the world and the Jewish people rejected him, they rejected their own belief. They rejected their own religion and transposed a pagan religion on top of that. So as Christians, can we do that as Christians? Well, there's been many of a person who has lived in a Baptist church, and I'm, I'm going to pick on Baptists for a minute, who were baptized in a Baptist church, who went to Sunday school, went to church on, on a regular basis, and still died never having known Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you believe that? Were they practicing Christianity, or were they practicing something different? Christianity, if we talk about it being that way, they've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, but if they've never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, then they've missed the entire point of everything else that they've done. Well, the Jewish people the same way. When they rejected Christ, they've missed the point of everything else that they have done. So yeah, absolutely, they have to accept Christ, and I believe that as he draws them through, and of course when we see in the, uh, the uh the book of Revelation, after the three and a half years is up and the Antichrist desecrates the temple and the eyes of the Jewish people are open, that's when we'll see a large part of the Jewish people come to that saving grace in relationship with Christ at that time. It is how I feel about that. Does that 
help answer, or does that muddy it up even worse? The other questions are coming. Yes. You know, the Jews are just as lost as the people there about. Absolutely. And so, uh, but I believe that the, like you say, the rest of the world seems like they're against the Jews. But I think that the day that the United States of America goes against the Jews will be the downfall of the United States. Well, the promise of Abraham, and I think it's in Genesis 18, uh, don't quote me, it's 18 or 21, or maybe it's in 18 and 21, uh, when God confirms his relationship with Abraham and his seed. And he gives a promise that if you'll bless his seed, that you'll be blessed. If you curse his seed, you'll be cursed. That promise was an unconditional covenant or an unconditional promise. It didn't say that if they acted good and you blessed them. It said if you bless his seed, they'll bless, he'll bless you. If you curse his seed, he'll curse you. Well, the nation of Israel, even if they are outside of God's will, are still of the seed of Abraham. And the promise is still there, the blessings and the cursings. If we bless, then God in turn will bless. If we curse, then God in turn will curse. But uh, once again, the Jewish people, absolutely, they are as lost as the Islamic people if they have not received and accept Jesus Christ. Now, there are Jewish people by nationality that have accepted Jesus Christ. Generally, we refer to them as Messianic Jews. Uh, but these are Jews who... Even them themselves would consider themselves a complete Jew uh, because they've accepted the end result of what true Judaism is supposed to teach. But Jewish people who have not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are as lost as the, the person here in America that has, that's an atheist or as lost as a Muslim, the Hindu, or any other religion that, that rejects Jesus Christ. Let me say it that way. Any other questions? Yes. I can see that, how Joseph's brothers... Uh, they were blinded. But, and if you remember the story of Joseph, when they first went to him, they didn't realize that he was their brother. They didn't realize that he was Joseph. It was only when Joseph revealed himself to them. And you're right. The, uh, I could see that being the same way with the Jewish people being revealed, or Christ revealing himself to the Jewish people during that time. But we also need to keep in mind that the book of, uh, Rome, or the book of Hebrews teaches us that the nation of Israel have veiled themselves over with a veil. When Moses came down off Mount Sinai and he shined like the noonday sun, they commanded him to put a veil on his head because it frightened them, and they didn't want to see that. So when he, he would cover himself with a veil before he, uh, while he was with the people, and then when he would go back to the mountain, he would take that veil off, and his face would shine. Well, by the time we get to the book of Hebrew in the New Testament, it tells us that the, the people chose to veil themselves. Now, it's speaking metaphorically and spiritually here. They don't actually walk around with veils over their face. But it does say that they have veiled their own eyes. So the people, they still have the opportunity to accept Christ and to receive him. But they have chosen in their own hearts to reject him and to keep themselves veiled over. But on that day on the Temple Mount when the Antichrist uh, reveals himself and he makes a sacrifice on the altar and um, um, desecrates the temple then that veil is going to be taken away they're going to realize at that moment in time it's going to be a I think you'll see a mass exodus of Jewish people toward Christianity or towards uh, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can you take for instance like uh, God didn't, uh, didn't put a veil over them they rejected mm -hmm. and these, uh, these results, just take for instance, this is the illustration I use a lot. You take poison, it could be in a, in a jug, 
you didn't know it was poison, you could drink it. It had the same results if you did, you knew it was poison. Mm -hmm. They chose, they chose to, re to reject Christ. They, they chose to worship idols. Mm -hmm. Man is created with a choice. God will not go over this choice. Yep. And they come to the point after a lot of persecutions during the tribulation that they will come to the point that they will come to the place where they will realize that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Yeah, I mean the, the choice the choice that they made to cover their own eyes, it would be it would be much like uh, us and, and we, we face this as Christians today. Now it's easy to put this off on Jewish people alone, but now there's people in this world that do the exact same thing. When we as Christians try to illuminate people to the truth of the danger and the, uh, the uh, simple fact that man is heading for hell apart from God, and we try to shine light on the situation, and they just want to turn the light off and keep marching down that road in an ignorant bliss of life, uh, they're doing the exact same thing the Jewish people have done by veiling themselves. The light was there to be illuminated to them if they would just simply accept it. And, and the Lord says, whosoever will, whosoever will call upon my name, he will be saved. You know, so everybody has that opportunity. But it's the choice, the individual choice that people make. So is that clear? You good? Any other questions, comments? He tells us that in verse 9 through 13 that not only the people are going to be brought back, but he's also going to refresh the land. Um, Verse 12 said, For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. You know, the very land itself is going to return to the state that God desired it to be. You know, the land was not desolate because it's in a bad place. You know, we look, I was looking at the map of uh, the Middle East a couple days ago. Uh, I showed Kim, it's amazing as you look at the Google map. And you roll over to America, and it's green. It's a beautiful color. You see mountains and trees, and it's just beautiful. And then you roll all the way around the earth, and there's like this big swash of white sandy area uh, that encompasses the Middle East. It's not desolate because it's just in a bad place or in a bad, bad environment. It's desolate because it has rejected the presence of Christ. It's rejected him. And, and this is the same metaphor that we have in Isaiah chapter 5. If you remember the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 5, if you want to turn over and read it, he basically gives this metaphor of a vineyard. He says, I've, I've had a very good vineyard, and I had the choicest of vines, and I planted them in a great field. And in that field, they were going to grow, and I built a trellis for them, and I had a wine press, and I had a well, and all these things that he had for it. And when they brought, he sought for it to bring forth grapes, it brought forth wicked fruit wicked grapes. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove my wall. I'm going to tear down my hedges. I'm going to allow the pestilence to come in. I'm going to allow the well, natural course of things to take place and basically make that land desolate. The reason that Israel became desolate is because of the sinfulness of the people, because they rejected God, because they pushed him out. But yet when they invite him back in and his presence comes back, guess what? All this is going to be turned around. He says the seed is going to be prosperous. The vine is going to give her fruit. And all these things I'm going to give to my people. They're going to have a rich, plenteous land. In fact, what was the land promised to them as they were coming out of, the, out of Egypt? Where were they heading to? 
the land flowing with milk and honey, and a land that was prosperous. Remember when the, uh, the uh, 10, 12 spies went into the promised land, and they came back? Remember what they were carrying with them? Remember the cluster of grapes? How was the cluster of grapes carried? Let me ask you, last time you walked out of Walmart or Myers or Kroger with a cluster of grapes, how did you carry them out? In your bag, right? You want to know how they carried them out of the promised land? Two men carried them on a staff between them. That's a big old cluster. And that was the promise that God had given them. And now, as we see during that millennial kingdom, that millennial reign, guess what? You're going to see a land that is very prosperous. The seed is going to prosper. The fruit's going to yield its uh, fruit. Uh, the ground is going to give up her increase for the people. The heavens shall give her her due. It's going to rain and allow the land to receive that. And all these promises are going to be there. So, uh, you know, God is going to allow the land to return back to the state that he desired for it to be. And his presence is going to be there to bless it. And uh, he tells them that you are cursed among them and now you're going to be blessed among the people. You know, as I said, if we read through history, the Jewish people have always been the target of haters, people who despised them for whatever reason. Well, we know why, because they were God's chosen people, and uh, Satan has been against them from the very beginning, and there's been a just a unnatural hatred for Jewish people, more so than any other religion. And you may say, well, Brother John, what about slavery? Yes, slavery was bad in this country, but slavery, and, and I'm not trying to be political about this, encompassed mostly black people, I realize that, but it also had white people who were slaves as well, and indentured slaves. Uh, there was people like that. But when you look at the Jewish nation as a whole, there have been nations set against them for their destruction. Right now, if you go to Iraq, they would say their purpose is to destroy the Zionists from the face of the earth. They, for whatever reason, do not want them to survive. But yet, the Bible tells us in that day, that people who have cursed you are now going to come to you and bless you. It makes me think of Israel or Egypt when they were getting ready to leave out of Egypt, how the people came to them that one day had them in bondage and slavery that was taking their, uh, their um, uh, hay from them, straw or stubble from them, and making them build bricks with uh, just the clay with the, the mud. And now they come out and they bring gold and silver to them for their journey. And I think the same thing is going to happen at that time, that people are going to be there in order to help bless that nation. The command that they have, the covenant that they, are, they go under, is that they are to live justly. Uh, you know, the Lord's desire for his people was always to be good to other people. You know, the Bible wants us to be good to other people, not just people who are good to us, but also our enemy. Uh, in fact, Micah, when we were back there in chapter 6 and verse 8, he says, uh, what, you know, what is God required of thee? And he says, uh, ha, uh, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Nothing's new in the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, when they came to him and they asked him the question, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, and the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, he said, upon these two hang all the prophets in the law. Upon these two commandments, to love the Lord thy God and to love your neighbor. So now they're, they're getting this other command that as during this time, they are to live justly. They are to execute judgment that is fair. They are to execute judgment that is just. Um, and then finally, he gets around to ask, or answering the, um, the question that they actually come to him to begin with. What about the fast? What are we going to do about the fast? Now that the temple is getting close to being rebuilt, do we still fast? 
on the fourth, fifth, tenth, and seventh month. Is that right? I think that's right. Something like that. And so now he's saying, no. At that day, in that time, those fasts are going to be returned or uh, turned into a time of rejoicing. You know, we can use our testimony as a time of rejoicing. Some of the things that were hard on us or some of the things that uh, we went through in life that was difficult, that we can turn that around and use that in order to bring praise and glory unto God. I'm glad I'm not there anymore. And I could use my past in order to glorify God right now. It's much like David when he went to the temple and he grabbed Goliath's sword, the very thing that was threatening his life, the very thing that wanted to kill him, to stuff him, uh, snuff him out as a young man, that David was able to go and grab that sword and hold it up before himself and encourage himself and others and saying, God has been good to me. You know, and the nation of Israel will be able to do that at that time. They'll be able to take these times of uh, their uh, fast that they had because of the destruction of the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, because of the execution of their governor, and they'll be able to turn those around and use those to exclaim the glory of God and the blessings that God has had on them. And then he uh, goes on in verse 20 through 23 that he doesn't leave the Gentiles out of this. See, Judaism was never an exclusive religion. Christianity is not an exclusive religion. Judaism and Christianity both. Judaism in its intent, let me, let me rephrase that, not as Jewish people practice it today apart from the presence of Jesus Christ, but Judaism in its intent was to be all-inclusive. You see provisions that was for other people to come into the relationship, for other people to come into the nation, to be part of that, to understand and to know God through that. There was uh, Gentiles that were brought into that covenant relationship at that time. Christianity is not an exclusive religion. Just because we're white Americans doesn't mean that we have, a, uh, we have all the rights to Christianity. Christianity is for all, whosoever will. And, and the same way that we see here when we get into the millennial kingdom and the Jewish people are there, God is not going to be there only for the Jewish people. But he tells them that it's going to be there for the Gentiles as well, that there's going to be people that's going to come and they're going to see the Jewish people going to Jerusalem and they're going to take hold of their skirts and they're going to say, let us go in as well. Let us uh, see because we know that God is with you. You know, throughout the history of Israel, any time that a nation knew that God was with them, they had fear and reverence for the nation. But when they thought that God had left them and departed them, guess what? So did that fear and reverence. It departed. And they became emboldened in their pursuit after Israel when God had left them. But when God is with them and the world sees that God is with them, then guess what? We're going to want to be partakers of the uh, people of the world are going to want to be partakers of that as well. And as we get to the end of chapter 8, you see that that, that, uh, that call to whosoever will is still there, even in the Old Testament, that God wants everybody in that relationship. Any questions or comments? John, I think a lot of times we talk about the land of Jews being You know, I, I thank God that he is long-suffering. You know, and because he is long-suffering, it's, it's went on longer than what most of us would tolerate it, but God is not us. His ways are higher than our ways. Uh, but there is a time of answering that's going to come. 
Uh, how long would it take to completely, uh, I mean, I think most people in here would agree with me if I said that we live in one of the most prosperous nations in the world. I'm glad that I can go home tonight and I can turn on my shower and I can clean up. I'm glad to know that I can go home tonight and I can take a glass and put it under my faucet and I can have clean-ish water to drink. <laughs> it is Lexington after all. I, well, I, I can drink it without dying. How about that? <laughs> it may taste a little funny from time to time, but we can go on. We can drink it. I can go home to an air-conditioned apartment. I can go home or a house. I can go home, open my refrigerator, and find something to eat. How quick can all that change? I mean, seriously, how quick can all that change? In, in a could it change in a month? I mean, we could have some. Uh, I mean, look at what happened in. Uh, New Orleans, or look what happened over on the East Coast, or look at what happens with some of the fires that take place. You know, could it happen in a week? Let me ask you this, could it happen overnight? Absolutely. We, we don't have the promise of any time. So, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that judgment's there for America because of some of the things I think that we can still turn back to him, but we will answer for what we've done uh, as, as a nation. Um, that God says, I am not mocked. You know, whatsoever a man soweth, he will reap. And we see it through the nation of Israel, and it should have been and should be a lesson to us today. I think so, too. You know, even to the point, and I know this is not popular to say, but even to the point of where we see some of the problems that we have in school. Anybody see in the paper where they found the bombs here in uh, Lexington at the school? Um, you know, when, uh, when the nation of Israel got rid of God from their society, what happened to the nation of Israel? Well, it fell apart. But yet in America, we think that we can kick God out of school and everything is going to be fine in school. Or we can kick him out of our government and everything is going to be fine in our government. You know, the whole purpose of separation of church and state was not to keep God out of government, but to keep government out of God. Keep him, keep government from uh, controlling the institution of religions. And, um, you know, but yet we have turned that around and we've kicked him out. What do we think is going to happen? You know, if we look at the history, if we look at uh, what happened with the nation of Israel or other places that uh, got rid of God, it wasn't long before they came to an end. And America is only a couple hundred years old. I mean, you think about our age. In terms of the Bible, when we start reading through stuff like uh, Joseph, right? We talk about him going to Egypt. 435 years in the nation of Egypt before God came back. So 435 years to God is nothing. A thousand years as a, as a day, you know, but yet we're only 200 years old and we've already come this far from God. And I don't know how long he's going to extend his coming back, but um, yeah, there's, there's going to be a day of judgment come to us because we have excluded God from our, uh, our society.